Then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out of the land of Canaan, and behold, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? So they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among them, then put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought his father, Jacob, and presented him to Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many years have you lived? So Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my sojourning are 130, few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had ordered. And Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to their little ones. Now there was no food in all the land because the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food, for why should we die in your presence? For our money is gone. Then Joseph said, Give up your livestock, and I will give you food for your livestock, since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys. And he fed them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent, and the cattle are my Lord's. There is nothing left for my Lord except our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. So give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. Amen. In this chapter, Genesis 47, the family of Jacob settles in the land of Egypt. And at the beginning of the chapter, we are told that Joseph goes to Pharaoh. He goes to Pharaoh in order to tell him, inform him, that his relatives and their possessions have entered the land of Egypt, and they've come from the land of Canaan. They are in the land of Goshen. This land of Goshen was already prescribed for them um, as the place in which they should dwell. This was already in chapter 46, 28 to 34. 46, 28 to 34. 
Now he is reporting to Pharaoh that this is actually the case, that they have settled there. But then in verse 2, he takes five of his brothers and presents them to Pharaoh in order for this permission to dwell there might be secured from Pharaoh. Already Pharaoh invited them, but now he has to give his official word from Pharaoh to Joseph and Joseph's brothers in the hearing of the brothers for them to settle in the land. In other words, they're not coming into the land illegally. They're not coming as bandits. They're not coming as uh, gluttons and lazy bums into the land. They're not there to exploit the land. They are there, coming there by permission. And then Pharaoh is going to interview them and ask them, what do they do? Because if they have a skill that will benefit the, the land, then it is, it is good for them to migrate from Canaan to Egypt. That's what's happening in the first section of this chapter where they are presented to Pharaoh before the dialogue with Jacob. So, verse 1, the land of Goshen. This is important and strategic because it was a well-watered area in the northern part of Egypt where the Nile would empty itself into various branches and then into the Mediterranean Sea. This was in northern Egypt, adjacent to the land of Canaan. It was Canaan to the northeast of Egypt and the Mediterranean Sea directly above. So this land of Goshen is very ideal for them to dwell there because of all of their flocks. Their flocks would have plenty of grass to be able to survive there for a while, for a long time without the rain that was necessary and the flooding of the Nile that was necessary that was not happening as frequently or as widespread as it usually did for the years of the famine, the seven years of famine. So that's why they dwell in Goshen. It's a good land. It's a fertile land compared to the rest of Egypt during the time of the famine. The five brothers are presented. It doesn't tell us who they are. Some have speculated who they are, but because it doesn't say, we cannot say very much as to who these five were. But they are presented as representatives and as witnesses to this exchange and conversation between them and Pharaoh. They are presented, and then the question is asked in verse 3. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? What is your, he already has an idea of this because of the previous chapter and previous encounters. He has an idea, but he's still confirming it and starting the dialogue this way to make sure that whatever their occupation is, they have a suitable scenario in Egypt to work. Pharaoh wants them to work, not be a drain on the system and the economy of Egypt. And this is the way it should be. Every official in the government should look at strangers or foreigners in this way. They should not be in the land to exploit the land, but to benefit the land. There should be a mutual benefit of having the foreigner in the land and then the inhabitants or citizens of the country helping the foreigner in whatever ways that the Bible expects the obligation to be. It should be a mutual kind of benefit. And that's why he asks them, what is your 
occupation. So they said to Pharaoh, verse 3, Your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. Which is true. They were shepherds. They owned a lot of cattle and, and herds, sheep, goats, oxen, cows. They owned all of these as well as other things. And they needed a place, a good place, to be able to continue raising them. And that's why they, they say this, we are shepherds. They're telling the truth. They're not lying. And they say, we and our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now the 12 sons of Jacob, are all in this profession. It's in the family. And this implies that they are skilled. They are successful because they had a large train, a company of people and animals accompanying them from Canaan to Egypt. And that would only be possible if they were skilled or, as he says, capable later in verse 6, capable men. They did have, in fact, capable men, at least enough of them among them to carry out this work. The idea that one needs to be hardworking or that one needs to be diligent, industrious in his work is a very important concept in Scripture. The Scripture does not permit us to be lazy and to be the dregs of the society, to be the leeches and the lazy men of society. Nowhere does the Scripture teach that, both in the Old Testament nor in the New Testament. An Old Testament example is in Leviticus 19, Leviticus 19, 9, and 10. Leviticus 19, 9, and 10. Now, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. The needy and the stranger are to glean. The harvest is for the owners for the inhabitants, for the citizens, but the gleaning, the remnants of the harvest, they are for the needy and the stranger, not for the owners of the lands to just simply give, but for them to glean, for them to work in the fields and get their own food with their own labor. Right. This also is what Ruth did in the book of Ruth. Mm-hmm. Ruth was not depending on Boaz or anybody else to just give her food. No, though she was from a foreign land, from the land of Moab, when she migrated to Judah or Judea, there she was expected to work and she did work. And Boaz, the owner of the land, he granted her permission to work and to glean. Yes, he was also generous to her, gracious and generous to her, but he didn't say don't work at all. He expected her to do so. In Ephesians 4:28, Ephesians 4:28, people who don't do this are thieves. People who don't earn a living are thieves. 
4.28, let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. The thief should quit stealing and instead labor. Labor, do an honest day's work with your own hands what is good. Good labor. Not using your hands to do evil, but use your hands to do good work, good labor. And not only provide for yourself, but for those who have an abundance, have a surplus to provide for those who have a need, a genuine need. Be ready at the time of an emergency to help the genuinely needy person. And this is in Pharaoh's mind. And even Jacob and his sons understand this. So there's no problem. He is just confirming that they come to the country legally and industriously. That's the way they should come into the country. Not illegally and not as leeches to the society. Every nation knows this. Every nation wants this, except their corrupt politicians and religious sycophants. They don't believe in this, but the general population understands this, and generally governments understand this, though there are exceptions and corruption. Further, in verse 4, 47.4, And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. Now the request, so that the request is made and the permission is granted. So this happened in the proper Way, We notice here that they are unable to sustain themselves in Canaan, but they do know that Goshen is a suitable place for them. We find by this something strategic that's happening. Goshen, though some Egyptians lived in that area, it was not so much an Egyptian area at that point. And so the people of Israel or the tribes of Israel the family of Israel, who became tribes, could live there and be away, generally speaking, not absolutely speaking, but generally speaking, be away from the high population density areas of the nation. At least they could be there and mind their own business, even when they had to interact with the Egyptians in that locality, in that region, that district. And so... They had the ability to mind their own business and live a quiet life, mind their own business in worship also, raise their own families without intense and tempting interaction with the Egyptians who practiced idolatry. They were able to do this because of the land of Goshen. The scripture does encourage us to separate like this whenever there is the danger of us interacting with idolaters, interacting with unbelievers. That should not be 
a negative thing, but a positive thing. And what we're talking about is not absolute avoidance of unbelievers. We're not talking about absolute avoidance. We're talking about avoidance when it comes to their sin. We as avoid or separate from unbelievers because of their sin and the temptations that they bring to us because of their sin. That's the sense in which we avoid unbelievers. Not in an absolute way that you never say hello, never have a friendship, never have a co-worker, never shake hands, never do anything with an unbeliever. The Bible is not talking about that. We're talking about in reference to their sin and the temptations they present to us because of their sin. That's the way. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. 1 Peter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them. There's the key. You do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is the reason, or one of the reasons, that God is providing the land of Goshen to them, not only for their physical livelihood, but the implication would be a spiritual livelihood. They could be left alone, generally speaking. Now, verse 5, 47, 5 of Genesis. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your Disposal, settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among them, then put them in charge of my livestock. Now the 
permission is granted, and it's granted to the mediator, Joseph. Granted to Joseph because Joseph is in charge of the land of Egypt. He is the ruler of the land under Pharaoh. And now it is granted. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle them in the best of the land, in the land of Goshen. This land of Goshen is further, in verse 11, called the land of Ramesses. And this is likely because this was the name of one of their kings or one of their pharaohs. That there he had a place or a palace, a residence in that area as well. So, the permission is granted to live there. Then, verse 6 says, If you know any capable men, put them in charge of my livestock. Capable men. Not reckless, unskilled men, but capable men in charge of Pharaoh's own livestock. Now, though the Egyptians disdained the lower professions, the lower occupations, but the Egyptians are not alone. Every society usually disdains the lower professions, the ones that are requiring manual labor. And those that don't require it, like nobility uh, in the government, those kinds of professions, office workers, are usually more highly esteemed than those who work with their hands. This is generally the case. So in the one hand, on the one hand, Pharaoh wants somebody in charge of his livestock. He's not going to do it himself. Of course not. But he still wants to have capable men take care of his livestock. Not just anybody. We notice a couple of things here in verse 6. One, this decree of Pharaoh, the land of Egypt is at your disposal. In this decree, it's God's work through Pharaoh. Even though it doesn't explicitly say it here in this verse, we do know from other verses, both in Genesis and in Scripture, that it is God who is doing this. It's God. Genesis 50, verse 20. And as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. The Egyptians were not normally the friends of the Hebrew people or the Canaanites. Not normally, but they are in this case. And why? Because their ways were pleasing to the Lord, so God blessed them in this way. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, Ezra 1, 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying. 
the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the Persian king, to act in a way that benefited the people of God. The Lord stirred up his spirit. Ezra 6.22, Ezra 6.22, And they observed the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had caused them to rejoice and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. God turned, God not only caused them to rejoice, but he also turned the heart of the king of Assyria to do God's will. Even though the king of Assyria did not know the Lord. These people did not know the Lord. Ezra 7.27, Ezra 7.27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to adorn the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. God put it into the heart of the king to adorn his house, his temple. This is why also we are called as holy men to lift up holy hands without wrath and dissension. First Timothy 2, 1 to 8, to do what? I urge you to offer petitions and prayers and thanksgivings on behalf and entreaties on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. So we are also called on wherever we live to pray for and expect God to move in the heart of our rulers to benefit us. Just as it is here, the church of God in a microcosm in the family of Jacob. The same way. Also, when it says here in verse 6, Genesis 47, 6, capable men, capable men, we're talking about having skills in life and being diligent with the skills or the gifts that God has granted to us. That's the way we should be generally. And then when we are that exceptionally, (coughs) this is what happens. Those capable men are going to be the shepherds of Pharaoh's livestock, right? The the cattlemen of his livestock. Proverbs 22, 29. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Men who are skilled in work will stand before kings. He expects us to be skilled in what we do. Always be skilled because we should not be so ungrateful with the goodness of God in our life that we don't use the abilities God has given us, the natural abilities, the talents, the gifts, that whatever we have, we should use them to the utmost and who knows who we may encounter. In 1 Kings 7, 1 Kings 7, 13 and 14, it speaks of the main architect or builder 
of the Temple of Solomon, the first temple. 7.13 of 1 Kings. Now King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was a widow's son from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze, and he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill for doing any work in bronze. So he came to King Solomon and performed all his work. That is Hiram of Tyre. And it says he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill. Well, who filled him? God filled him. Also, 1 Kings 10, 1 Kings 10 and verse 8. The queen of Sheba says this to Solomon. How blessed are your men. How blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. They were blessed providentially to be there in the court of Solomon. We continue. First, at verse 7, 47, 7, Genesis 47, 7. Then Joseph brought his father, Jacob, and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed him. Now Jacob is presented to Pharaoh, and in verse 7 and in verse 10, it says, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. What is this blessing that he is giving to Pharaoh? This blessing is like we said, it's similar to what we said earlier, in that it is we who are praying for the king. And in this way, Jacob is blessing Pharaoh because he wishes for good to happen to the king so that the king can do good to the people of God. That's the blessing. Jeremiah 29, verse 7. Jeremiah 29, 7. This is said to the captives that the Babylonians have enslaved and uh, taken captive to Babylon and elsewhere. He says, 29, 7. And seek the peace of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its peace... You will have peace. Pray for the peace of the city where you are taken into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. Because as God blesses that city or that country, you will be blessed. And also, as we saw in 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2, we are to pray in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Even Ezra, even Ezra will say some similar words. Ezra chapter 6, Ezra chapter 6 and verse 22, what was it that God made happen? So that the house of God, the work of the house of God might prosper. That means the work of God. Ezra 6.22. This is the reason that we pray. This is the reason why we want good things to happen. And also Ezra 6 verse 10 in reference to prayer specifically that they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray 
for the life of the king and his sons. Pray for the life of the king and his sons. Generally speaking, when governments have stability, the people have stability. But when somebody is in the rulership for a very short time, then there is instability in the land, upheaval and chaos in the land. And so here, the king wants Ezra and the people of God to pray for him. Even if he's a pagan, he still wants God's blessing on him so he can live a long life and produce stability and prosperity for all of those in his domain. This is the blessing that Jacob pronounces on Pharaoh. And after all, Jacob is going to live in the domain, in the kingdom of Pharaoh, and it will bless him too. This is not for selfish reasons. It is for spiritual reasons so that they might prosper in the things of God, in the kingdom of Pharaoh. Verse 9, 47.9. This is one of the most significant verses in the book of Genesis. One of the most significant. First, let's notice its details. The years of my sojourning are 130. He calls it sojourning two times. My sojourning, their sojourning. Their meaning Abraham and Isaac, their sojourning. My sojourning, their sojourning. He calls it a sojourning, a sojourn, which is also in verse 4. We have come to sojourn in the land. They came as foreigners, as aliens, as strangers to come there temporarily, not permanently. They're not trying to hijack the country, overthrow the government of the country. They're not trying to do anything like that. They come as foreigners for a temporary time to sojourn. Then it's for 130 years. He's lived 130 years. His forefathers, Abraham, Abraham lived to be 175 years, total life, 175, Genesis 25, verse 7. Genesis 25, 7 says he lived to be 175. In Genesis 35, 28, 35, 28, it says Isaac lived to be 180 years. In Jacob's case, so far, 130 And he understands, he perceives that he is feeble. He doesn't know how much longer he has to live. And he's thinking it's not going to exceed Abraham and Isaac, which ends up being true. Look at 47, Genesis 47, 28. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. Jacob lived in Egypt for 17 years. That's how long he saw Joseph before he died. It's also how long he saw Joseph at the beginning of Joseph's life. In Genesis 37, verse 2, Joseph was 17 years old when his brothers mistreated him. Genesis 37, he was 17. 17 at the beginning of Joseph's life, and then at the end, Jacob sees Joseph for another 17, first in the land of Canaan, now here in the land of Egypt. So 
147 years. He calls his days on the earth few and evil. Literally, it's evil. Few and evil. Well, why? Few, because they're not as long as Abraham and Isaac. And if by this he's also implying those who lived before the flood for seven, eight, nine hundred years. So that is, relative to that, small number of years. Few number of days compared to the patriarchs before the flood. From Adam to Noah, it's few. And even between Adam and... Uh, sorry, Noah in Genesis 11, Noah's son Shem, Genesis 11, verse 10 to 31, where the genealogy of Shem goes from Shem, son of Noah, to Abraham. Even they had lifespans that were longer, typically, than Jacob's here, 147, or 130 by this point. He is not griping, he's not complaining. People want to put a negative spin on this, but that's not what Jacob is doing. He is merely saying, you're asking me my age, I, I am an old man, but he is minimizing the goodness of, of God in his life compared to the blessing of God in the previous ancestors, in, in the previous fathers. In the fathers, it was tremendous Yes, you see that I'm blessed, and I understand I'm blessed, but not compared to them. But also, not compared to eternity. We'll see that in just a moment. Not in comparison to eternity. The life on earth is a life of few days and evil days compared to eternity, which is full of eternal days and blessings. Good, prosperity forever and ever. That's what he's doing here. He's comparing it, this life, to the life to come. Now, he also said evil. It's easy to see what he meant by evil. He had many, many afflictions throughout his life, starting in chapter 25 up to this point. Genesis 25 to this point. Many, many afflictions. This conflict he had with his brother Esau. He had this arduous life with Laban in the land of Padanaram. Laban mistreated him many, many times. He had to marry these other women. He had the death of Rachel, the wife he wanted to marry, a premature death. She died giving birth to Benjamin. He lost Joseph. He thought he lost Joseph up to this point. So he was in misery for many years until, for 22 years until he knew Joseph was alive and then came back here. He had also a near or potential of near death when his two sons, Simeon and Levi, in chapter 34, when they massacred the Shechemites, the surrounding Canaanites could have easily retaliated on the small band compared to the rest of the Canaanites. He had the threat of his life like that. There were many afflictions like this that Jacob had experienced, which is indicative of the people of God. And indeed, those who de- desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Right. 2 Timothy 3, 12. 
Acts 14.22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We must enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. This is the way of the Christian life. And this is the way of Jacob's Christian life. Now I say Christian life. Jacob's Christian life. May I explain that word? We can call Jacob a Christian because he believed in anticipation. He believed in the upcoming death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of his sins and eternal life. He can be called a Christian in that sense. We can call people Christians before the word Christian is used. In the book of Acts, for example, what are the people called? What do we call the people from the book of Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, through chapter 10? Who, did the Samaritans become Christians? Did the Ethiopian eunuch become a Christian? Did Saul become a Christian? Right? Did the house of Cornelius in chapter 10, did they become a Christian? Yes. How about the Antiochians? In chapter 11, did they become Christians? Yes. But it says in Acts eleven twenty six, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Right. So you can be a Christian without using the word. There are many words to describe the true faith. Yep. And both before Acts 11 and after Acts 11, in the book of Acts, the disciples were typically called followers of the way. The way. Because Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way. So in that way, Jacob is a Christian because he anticipated the life to come because of Jesus Christ. He regarded the reproach of Christ, just like Moses later did, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Hebrews eleven twenty six. Now, I said we'll come back to sojourning. Jacob professes himself to be a sojourner. But wasn't Jacob born in the land of Canaan? If he was born in the land of Canaan, don't we usually say that they are natives, not strangers? Natives, not foreigners? Citizens, not aliens? Don't we use these words in contrast? But Jacob was born there. Even Isaac was born there, right? Isaac and Jacob were born there. Yet they self-identify as sojourners, strangers, aliens. Not only in Canaan, but also in Egypt. In what sense did they mean it? Turn to Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25, 23. Leviticus 25:23 The land moreover shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine for you are but aliens and sojourners with me you are but aliens and sojourners with me this is the book of leviticus this is before they enter canaan We have here regulations on how they are to own the land, what they should or should not do with land ownership. And the reason given 
is that the land belongs to God and that they are aliens and sojourners with God in the land of Canaan. But they own it. When they conquer the Canaanites, they will be the owners of it. How in being owners and their descendants being citizens of the land that they possess, why are they called aliens and sojourners with God? Because this is in anticipation. Canaan is a symbol of heaven. Our life on the earth is temporary, like a sojourner's dwelling in a foreign land is temporary, typically speaking, unless he becomes a citizen of that nation. It's a temporary residence. First Chronicles 29, First Chronicles 29, 15. First Chronicles 29, 15. We have taken a passage in Leviticus and First Chronicles in basic legal and narrative sections of Scripture to show we're not talking about something that's a metaphor that we're taking out of context. This is not poetic speech that we're taking out of context, metaphorically speaking, spiritually speaking. We're not taking license with the text. This is actually what the text is teaching. First Chronicles 29.15, David says, and David is about eight to 900 years after Jacob. David says this in about 1000 BC, for we are sojourners before you and tenants as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no hope. David is saying that the time on the earth is temporary, like shadows are temporary. Just like shadows also, though there may be sunlight, if one is in the shadow, he does not have the radiant light of the sun directly upon him. But when will that time come? for the radiance of the sun of righteousness to be shining on us. Well, in the life to come, because there's no hope in this world. The hope is in the world to come. As sojourners and tenants, what does a tenant do? He temporarily (laughs) resides in someone else's property. The property belongs to God, God intended for us to dwell in it temporarily, but then leave it as tenants and sojourners to leave it and go to our citizenship in heaven. Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, verses 8 to 16. Hebrews 11, 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God." 
By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them, that's the foresight or anticipation, having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Didn't we just read Leviticus 25, 23, 1 Chronicles 29, 15, and our verse, Genesis 47, 9? They're all saying this. They're all admitting this, that they are strangers and exiles on the earth. But why did they call themselves by those words? 14, for those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. They anticipated the heavenly city. They anticipated heaven. That's why they said that. We took a few moments on this verse. Why? Because... Many, many interpreters and commentators of the Old Testament, especially of the liberal kind and some of the dispensational kind, they assert that the people of the Old Testament had no clue about the life to come. They did not know about the life to come. They did not understand about heaven and hell. They weren't told, they weren't preached any of those doctrines. They did not know what to do for their salvation. And even in dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is just like this with liberalism in saying that nobody in the Old Testament believed in the coming death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of his sins and eternal life. Nothing like that was believed in or known until Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Only then. But we cannot have that. We cannot have that because it undermines the gospel in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, from Adam until the end of the world. It undermines one gospel that anybody who is saved in any period of time has to be saved by believing in the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of his sins and eternal life. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Which scriptures? The scriptures we're studying and reading. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Acts 15, 1 to 4. That is the gospel. That's the summation of the gospel. And they understood that. They understood that the Son of God would come into the world, be a perfect man, die on the cross, rise from the dead, to make payment for their sins. And that only by the work of the Spirit's regeneration in the dead human heart could they or would they even presume to put faith in Christ and repent of their sins thereby. That's the only way. That's intimated here with Jacob. And 
Whenever people say, well, that's not clear. Well, it's clear enough. It's clear enough. And when they say it's not clear to them, we should say, well, it's clear to us. It's clear to me. Why isn't it clear to you? And if the Holy Spirit is in you and the Holy Spirit is in me and the Holy Spirit is in Jacob and he was a prophet. Genesis 49, 1 and 2, Jacob was a prophet. Abraham was a prophet. Genesis 20, verse 7. If they are prophets, they have the Spirit of Christ in them. Spirit of Christ, 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. Spirit of Christ within them as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So they did know. They did understand. Even though we might say, well, it's not clear. Well, it's clear enough. And it's clear enough to those who have the Holy Spirit to believe in what the Spirit is revealing. Let's continue. We'll continue with verses 11 and 12. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had ordered. And Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to their little ones. We see that Joseph, he cares for his family. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, He who does not provide for his own, and especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Joseph is providing for his household. He's not denying the faith and he's not worse than an unbeliever. Joseph is caring for the people in his own household. This also shows the marvelous provision of God. The marvelous provision of God so that the people of God should not be anxious about their possessions and anxious about their future. They should not be anxious about their circumstances because anxiety is sin. We say anxiety or or anxiousness or don't be anxious, but anxiety is a sin. If the Bible says do not be anxious, then if we are anxious, then we're sinning. Right. We can't say it's a personality trait. I'm, I'm born that way. I have a bent that way. Or I'm really concerned. I'm just concerned. And so don't call it anxiety. Just call it a concern. We cannot try to relabel it and smooth it over, gloss over the sin. If... If it's wrong, it's wrong. Let's not wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearer. Jesus taught us this. And he taught us this in Matthew 6, 19 to 34. Matthew 6, 19 to 34. After teaching us not to love money, but to trust God who will provide for our daily needs, if he provides for the grass and the flowers, and the birds, he will take care of us. That's Matthew six nineteen, all the way to 32. But his lesson is in 33 to 34. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do not be anxious. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God. Wasn't Joseph doing that? 
Wasn't Jacob doing that? And wasn't God providing for their needs? Yes. And he'll also provide for our needs if we're seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. It's together. Seek the things of God and the righteousness of God in one's life. That means practice righteousness, practice godliness or holiness, and all these things shall be added to you. Then you'll have enough food and covering, and with these we shall be content. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.